Mark chapter 12, and verses 28 through 34. Hear the word of God. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Amen. Father God, we bow before your word once again, and it is our desire to worship you, and to love you as we ought. I pray that you would quicken the word to our hearts, strengthen our resolve, and enable us, Father, to live this word out to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I presented this chart here, and I forgot to bring the overhead, but uh, presented this as kind of a summary of the four ways of loving God, trying to give as many concrete details as I could fit into one page without making it too confusing. I'm sure it's probably somewhat confusing the way it's laid out, and we're going to be adding a little bit to the chart today, but I confided in you that I had the hardest time working on uh, the uh, emotion quadrant over here, all of your heart, but everything really to the right of that uh, up and down line was something that uh, I had struggled with. And uh, we looked at heart and saw that the word heart, when it is contrasted with will, mind, and soul, uh, the main thing that is left involving the heart would be the, the uh, emotion. And we saw it included some other things as well, but we were looking primarily at loving God with your emotions, what does that mean? And how do we avoid emotionalism? How do we avoid error? Now today I hope to finish off the verse, verse 30, and to pick up at the second biggest stumbling block that I had, and that was loving God with all of your soul. So that would be the uh, bottom right uh, quadrant that's on the chart there. And uh, up until, I think it was, what, about 20 years old, um, I had a little bit more difficult time relating to people because of my shyness and the upbringing that I had in my boarding school, and I struggled with that. I probably would have been quite content to live in a monastery and study so long as the monks left, left me alone. Actually, it wasn't quite that bad, but um, it, it was painful for me to relate to people, and uh, I had high levels of shyness, and the relational side of love just was more difficult. Now, last week, some of you confided in me this is exactly the areas that you have been struggling with as well. So we're going to focus most of our sermon on the bottom right-hand quadrant, loving God with your soul, and then we will 
deal with the other two, which are, I think are a little bit easier to, uh, to understand. But I want to, first of all, define our terms. What does it mean to love God with your soul? Um, first thing I want to emphasize is that the soul and the spirit are the same thing. Okay, we're, uh, I don't hold to a tripartite view of man. I hold to a bipartite view. But there is a distinction, I think, a semantic distinction between soul and spirit in terms of the emphasis that God is uh, intending. When God uh, speaks in the scripture about a person as a unique personality and the social relations of that person, including the longings, the inclinations, the loneliness, the fellowship, things like that, he tends to use the word soul. And we'll, I don't think we'll get into the, all of the distinctions between the words, uh, soul and spirit, but it's the immaterial man, the inside of us, the person that's inside of us, especially in its relationship to God and our relationship to his people. He wants us to communicate more and begin to learn to enjoy relationships. Now, you've already gathered by now that enjoying relationships was almost an oxymoron earlier on in my life. It was painful. I, I, I wanted to be there, and yet I had a difficulty because of the, the shyness factor. And uh, it was really only in, in later years that I began to more and more consistently begin to enter into the enjoyment of relationship. And uh, back in those days, I think I could relate to nine-year-old John who said that love is, quote, like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. Well, I ran. <laughs> I avoided relationship. Uh, like the plague, and I recognized over time that I was unbiblical in this, and since that time, I consciously, deliberately sought to grow in all four quadrants. Now, I mentioned last week there are other areas that I just learned about this year, you know, that I hadn't even stretched myself in, but I have stretched myself to grow, and that's what I want you to do as well. Now, the funny thing of looking back on those days when I thought that I didn't need any relationships with other people was that I was lonely which shows that I really did need those relationships. And I think it's built right into every one of us. All four of the quadrants on this chart here that we're going to be referring to from time to time are inescapable from man. We may align them toward idolatry, or we may abuse them or harden ourselves or close them off, but they are inescapable. We, we have a need for all four of those areas. And I've put into your outlines on the reverse side of the sheet there uh, some of the things that we have as substitutes that we try to fill uh, our hearts and to quench that loneliness that just are not uh, good solutions. Now, the first one I've listed there is busyness. If I can just stay busy long enough, maybe I won't think about my loneliness, and it's, it's not a, a solution that works. Uh, some have sought to fill the void in their hearts by buying new things. They feel a temporary, you know, well of good feeling. And it kind of covers over the pain of the loneliness. Some do it through adultery. You know, the thrill of a temporary relationship where there's no questions asked is, is just too much of an allure for some people. But what happens frequently is as they get to know this person that they've had this relationship with, disillusionment sets in and they're on to a search for someone else. It's a false solution. Drugs is another substitute. If you look at the statistics on drugs and why it is that people get into drugs, one of the highest answers up there is people just feel painfully lonely, very lonely. Well, drugs gives a temporary stopgap good feeling to the person, but it's not a good solution, obviously. Single people uh, will seek to answer loneliness with marriage. 
but we're going to be seeing if you have not solved the problem of loneliness before you're married, sometimes you can take that loneliness right into marriage with you. Uh, the last substitute I've listed is wealth, accumulating wealth and possessions. And there's actually a whole bunch of other substitutes. Uh, Solomon, um, he'll tell you that this is no substitute for that soul relationship with God. He said, emptiness of emptiness, all is emptiness. I think it was Har Howard Hughes who said, it's lonely at the top. And some people say, let me be lonely. You know, I'd like to be at the top. But no, really. Uh, for every station of life, there are, there are uh, troubles that you go through. And if wealth is trying to be a substitute for that, it's not going to work. Of the four quadrants of love that are on your sheet, the only one that will fill the loneliness gap there is the soul quadrant. Serving will not do it as important and as essential as serving is to God's definition of love. It will not fill the gap. Um, studying won't do it. We're going to be seeing. Studying is absolutely essential to loving God as we are supposed to love him. But that will not fill the loneliness gap. Sanctifying your emotions will not do it. And uh, I want to try to deal with the, the concrete. What does it mean? How do we take it from abstract into the concrete details of our life? And I think to some degree we recognize this, how it works, you know, in our relationships with each other, how that soul-to-soul -soul, uh, relationship works. But it's essential in our love for God as well. David prayed to God, as I want you to pray to him, turn yourself to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. He wanted the reality of God's presence with him. In fact, his worst cry was in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It killed him. You know, he didn't like it when he did not sense the presence of the Lord, the favor of the Lord in his life. He wanted to love God with his soul. Now, before I show you how to develop a sense of God's presence in your life and entering into this soul-to-soul -soul, uh, kind of, uh, of love, let me explain why obeying Christ's commandment here to love God with all your soul is definitely worthwhile. Uh, first of all, and I've listed this in your outline, first of all, it settles fears, calms, anxiety, it gives boldness. Joshua 1.9 is uh, the first one. I'm not going to read all of the scriptures I've given in your outline, but it says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When you sense that God's presence is with you, it enables you to conquer the fears, gives you courage. It enables you to uh, face some of the things to keep you from being dismayed. Now remember, we're talking about the soul quadrant. It's not a knowledge about God. It's not the mind quadrant here. This here is talking about the very experience of God's presence in our life. And Joshua 1.9 says it takes away fear gives us courage another benefit is that god's presence gives joy you might wonder how in the world a person like richard wormbrandt could experience that overwhelming joy and love even in the midst of his being persecuted by and tormented by his persecutors if you read fox's book of martyrs and you read some of the other books of martyrs that were uh, tortured for their faith Many times, God came in there and gave them the supernatural joy. It was not just a knowledge about God's presence with them, but it was his very presence overwhelming them, ministering to them when they were in jail. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence, 
is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so if you're lacking in the joy of the Lord, it may be that you've neglected loving God with this sole quadrant, you know, of our equation here. Uh, that's maybe why you don't sense uh, his presence in your life. Psalm 23, verse 4 tells us God's presence helps us to face death. And you've all got that memorized. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, 2 Timothy 4 shows how the presence of God strengthened Paul even when he was betrayed and forsaken by his friends. He said, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me. Now, what Paul's saying there is that our, our relationship with God is not a substitute for our relationship with humans. It still hurts when humans forsake us, right? And I think you'll recognize, even in the Garden of Eden, God and Adam have perfect fellowship, and yet he still says it is not good for man to be alone. God intended us to have that horizontal relationship. Another way of saying it is that you cannot separate verses 30 and 31. Loving our neighbor and loving God, they, they do work together. And so it's not a substitute for, and yet the only thing that will minister when people forsake is God. So let me keep on reading. He's been forsaken, and he says in verse 16, At my first offense no one stood by me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. Here comes the solution. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Psalm 27.10 says, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Now, I'm not going to give all of the points uh, in detail. Let me just list them quickly for you. Scripture shows that our soul's direct sense of God's presence promotes godliness. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, through chapter 7, verse 1, helps us to persevere, Hebrews 12, gives faith, Psalm 9, verse 10, gives contentment, Hebrews 13, 5. Uh, gives confidence in evangelism, Matthew 28, verse 20. Remember, he, he's giving this impossible task, and they're probably overwhelmed. What do you mean? Disciple the whole world, Christianize all the nations? And he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why uh, they could go, is because Christ was going with them. And so it's important, it's worthwhile. But let me take a few minutes to show how we can love God uh, with our soul, how we can experience this abiding presence. And I've given in your outline several steps. First step is be willing to be broken to your own self-sufficiency. Scripture says the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. He's near to them. Um, James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he goes on to say how we draw near to him. He says, submit yourself under the hand of God. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The Bible says the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. So that's the first essential step, is that we've got to be broken to our pride, broken to our self-sufficiency. A second step that might be lacking is we may have never asked for the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11, uh, because I think there's a very significant failing on the part of many people. They think maybe that they have to earn the Holy Spirit, and they say, I, I can never measure up. Sure, other people have experienced the Holy Spirit's power in their lives, but this passage indicates, just ask. He is so willing to give of his Holy Spirit in, in our lives. Luke 11, and let's see, let's read verses 9 through 13. 
I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more? I love those words. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We don't have to earn the Holy Spirit. We simply have to ask for the Holy Spirit. And so if you are lacking in this whole area, think of Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, you don't earn the Spirit. It's not by the works of the law. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you works miracles among you. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? By the hearing of faith. He says, drink. Drink of the living waters. Claim the Holy Spirit. Third, claim his manifested presence. Now, God's omnipresent everywhere, right? But he says there are times when he manifests his presence to you. Revelation uh, 3, verse 20, he is standing outside of a church. He's knocking on the church door. And he's saying, uh, yeah, what does he say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He's saying, it's going to be a special presence. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to be ministering to you. Here's another promise. John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He's talking about the personal presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our lives. Fourth, live in obedience to the things that God has already shown to you. Because there are times where it's just because of disobedience that God withdraws the comfort of his presence. Why? Because he wants us to repent so that we will have the renewed presence of his Spirit. John 14, verse 21 says he who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and i will love him and manifest myself to him it's an important phrase there i will manifest myself to him it's not just talking about the other three quadrants it includes those but this includes the relational quadrant of love he comes to us he manifests himself to us fifth thing may be lacking is simply waiting upon the lord let me tell you this is probably one of the hardest disciplines if you're anything like me maybe it's not hard for some people but if you're like me this is one of the hardest (laughs) disciplines to put into your life is to wait upon the lord Uh, luke 5 verse 16 summarizes a habit of life for jesus it says so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed and there's other gospel accounts that show he went off into a solitary place he went off by himself why did he want to be by himself? Why does he admonish us in the Sermon on the Mount that we need to be into the prayer closet where nobody else is around? I think it's because there are so many interruptions and there's so much busyness of life that unless we're totally alone, it's going to be really hard for us to enter into this soul-to-soul uh, type of relationship that he is calling us to. Uh, Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Be still and know that i am god well literal rendering is cease striving and know that i am god and i think many times in our prayer life all we do is striving 
constantly busy. Now, there's a place for striving. We're going to look at that quadrant in a little bit, right? But there's also a place for just quietness before the Lord and, and filling our thoughts with him. One person commenting on this passage says, get alone, get still, and get quiet before God. Don't ask God for anything. Don't work on problems. Think on his presence being with you and offer yourself to him to be his temple. We have focused on ourselves, our needs, and our problems for so long that we have lost the reality of God. We need to learn to focus on him. God is a person who can be known in increasing degrees of intimate acquaintance as we take time to behold him. You know, uh, the Puritan John Owen, I think, had spent so many years in this quadrant of, of love. He said that he was able to discern the differences between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their communion with him and ministering to his heart. I can't. <laughs> I can't tell uh, any difference. But he was able to. He was an incredible scholar. In fact, that was his strength, was the mind side of him. An incredible scholar produced a massive amount of... Uh, he was probably the most scholastic of all of the Puritans, and yet he knew he had to spend these times of quiet with God and close, intimate uh, relationship with him. And we need to remember, God wants our soul, not just our busyness. We'll get to the busyness quadrant in a little bit. Psalm 130, one of many passages that call upon us to wait for the Lord to come. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. I say, more than those who watch for the morning. I don't know if you've ever had to stand guard. I was a security watchman. I think John has, uh, you know, in that graveyard shift. Man, it takes a long time for morning to come, doesn't it? And he is saying, if you've got that kind of a desire, when is the morning going to come? God will reward you with himself. I think point F is also a very important uh, step. Begin throughout the day to practice the presence of the Lord. Now, let me explain what that means. I got the, the phrase from a title from a book. Uh, Doug Meyer actually lent it to me. It's a book called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. He was just a simple kitchen worker. You know, I had to work all day long in the kitchen. And I see several nods in the congregation, other people who have read that. And he learned what it meant to be in constant communion with God throughout the day. Even when he was talking with other people, the sense of God's presence uh, with him. The most mundane task that he did, he wanted to do it with a sense of God's presence, a sense of God's love. And he said he didn't want to so much as pick up a straw from the ground apart from God's love and his presence uh, with him. Let me just read you a short excerpt. And it's not a perfect book, but uh, it, it was an encouragement. I think he gets his uh, basic point across. He said, On a normal working day, I would try to fill my waking mind with thoughts of God. The Bible often began my thinking, and prayer always filled this out and made it personal to me. So by the time I set off to work, I'd already been in God's presence for an hour or so, not just on my knees, you must understand, but while I had been shaving and eating my breakfast, too. When I got to work, I would check on all the day's responsibilities. And then I would briefly but deliberately commit it to God. I often used the same prayer. Oh, my God, you are always with me. Since I must now, in obedience to your will for me, apply my mind to my day's work, grant me the grace I shall need to continue through it in your presence. Help me to do this work to your glory. Receive it as a spiritual offering and let my desire be only to please you. Then, as the day, day's routine began, I would know that I was as near God and he is near me as if I could have seen him there with my physical eyes. 
At the end of the day, I would stop to think about how it had gone. If things had gone well, both in my work and in my consciousness of God, I would give him thanks. If it had not gone well, I would ask his forgiveness, and without allowing myself to become discouraged by my failure, I would set my mind right again and turn once more to thinking of God as if I'd never stopped. And so I can honestly say that through the years of practice, I have now come to a condition where it would be as difficult for me not to think of God as it used to be to get into the habit of doing so. And now I think he was just living out the commandment to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Pray without ceasing. Does it mean your lips are always moving all day long and all night long? I don't think that's what it means at all because you wouldn't be able to talk to anybody else. You wouldn't be able to get any work done. You wouldn't be able to live out the other quadrants, would you? So it's not just verbal praying. What we think of as formal praying, what it is is it's a constant awareness of God's presence with you. And everything you're doing, you're doing as if God's looking over your shoulder. (coughs) (coughs) Second, interact with God when you read the Scriptures. Respond knowing that there is a person right there in the room when you're reading those Scriptures. When God promises peace, you can say it silently or you can say it out loud, Lord, I need that peace if you need it. Um, and just interact with the Lord and the things that you're reading. When he confronts you with a sin, ask for forgiveness. When you're reading the scripture, ask the Lord, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to understand more of the scripture than the last time that I read through this. Uh, Do the same in the worship services. Talk to God. Interact with the sermon. You know, in some cultures, there's constant verbal interaction, but you can interact in your head. You know, we don't have to be totally (laughs) un-Presbyterian in this congregation. But interact with God, okay? Respond to the things that are going around you. Scripture says we need to sing to the Lord with grace in our hearts. So sing to God. Sing to each other. Be conscious of the soul or the relational side of our love. We can't be so preoccupied with what we're doing that we lose uh, touch with the sense of his presence. Now the fifth tip is a very helpful one. I got this from the Puritan John Flavel. And if you've never read any of his writings, he, is, he was just a masterful a devotional uh, expositor, I guess is the the right word. But when you talk to fellow believers, keep your mind's eye, keep in your mind's eye that Jesus is in them. So that what you are saying to them and what you are doing to them, you are doing to Jesus. Now that will make such a difference in your life. Matthew 25 says, Inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me, right? And so he says, When you visited those Christians in prison, you actually visited me. And the way he worded it actually is, you visited me in prison, you fed me, you clothed me. And they say, when did we do that? And he says, inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. So what you need to do, John Flavel says, is you need to relate to people as if they were Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is in them. And by the way, this this gives somewhat of a clue as to why 1 John says, If you claim to love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. Why? Because Jesus is in them. When you hate them, he says, you're hating me. Remember what he said to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's saying, I'm not persecuting you. Well, he didn't say that, but he might have thought that. And Jesus says, no, you are persecuting me because you are persecuting my people, and that's how closely united I am with them. If you can once grasp that concept, and you begin practicing it throughout the day, consciously thinking of Jesus being in your children when you are serving them, oh, it will start to give joy 
to the menial tasks that had no joy before, and it'll start to revolutionize your thinking. I think it's a fantastic way of beginning to develop this conscious sense of God's presence. <coughs> the problem with pietism is that frequently it wants to divorce soul love from mind and strength. And uh, we're going to look at errors. You can write in some of the errors in all of the four quadrants a little bit later on. But I do want you to keep in mind verse 29 of our passage in, in Mark that uh, sets the context. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord, the Lord is one. Because God is one, because he is not fragmented, we may not fragment the way that we love. Because he is consistent, we need to be consistent in the way in which we love. You know, sometimes our words will say one thing, but our facial expression will say something totally different. Well, we need to get our act together and begin working on how our body can be consistent with what we are saying, what we are feeling, okay? So there needs to be a consistency there. Our, our actions need to match our minds. Now, let me go on to the sixth tip for practicing the presence of God. <clears throat> and I'll give a couple of examples just in terms of our reactions to providence. When you're reading the newspaper, don't just read it between you and yourself and I, right? Read it as if God is looking over your shoulder. <clears throat> and when you run across, you know, for example, the government's legislating some immorality, don't just be grieved about it in yourself. Offer it up to the Lord. Now, you can do it in different ways. You can do it by putting down the paper and praying to the Lord about that and saying, Lord, I pray that you would change this situation here or pray for the family of somebody that got shot that's mentioned in the thing. That's a formal way. But there's an informal way of praying that as well where you continue reading. You haven't stopped your reading, <clears throat> but you are sensing God looking over your shoulder and you're just offering it up to, to the Lord. You know, my brother did this all the time when he was reading in the room when I was there. I'm reading my own book, okay? And he'll start laughing at something he's reading in his book and say, Phil, listen to this. And he'll read it to me, and I'll get a chuckle and laugh over it. And I'll go back to reading. He'll say, Phil, listen to this. And he's shaking his head over something, and he'll read something. Well, you can do that with God. You can just, as it were, offer it up to the Lord. In fact, that's what Hezekiah did. Remember the story when Sennacherib came against him? Just dawned on me here. <clears throat> Here's this long, long letter and Hezekiah doesn't even know what to do about it. He just, he lays out the letter. He says, Lord, read this letter. <laughs> Lord, act. This is terrible stuff. And he just lays the letter out before the Lord. So when you're reading the newsletter, if you can read it with a sense that God is right there and you're reading it to him, sort of like my brother would read to me, you know, you're, you can continue right on reading, but it's with the sense God cares about what you're reading over. Or <clears throat> when you... Um, are beaming inside over your daughter or your son, you know, playing some musical instrument or, or uh, uh, dancing or skating or something like that. Don't just beam within yourself. That's great. But beam to the Lord because the Lord delights in your children. The Lord delights in the music that your children are playing. In other words, I'm saying every aspect of providence needs to be done with a consciousness. God cares about it. God's with you. And you, you can verbalize it or you cannot verbalize it. You can just, sometimes fellowship can be silent, right? Well, sometimes Kathy and I, are you, we sit together and we just enjoy each other. We're driving, you know, somewhere. It's just fun to be together. You don't even say anything. But the consciousness of God's presence needs to be constantly, constantly there. <coughs> and at first, 
this practice may just make you more and more conscious of his presence. In other words, it's an increased knowledge. It's the mind dimension. But the more you, the more you develop that, the more you're going to begin increasingly experiencing the reality of God's soul ministering to your soul. And it, it, it is so cool. Once you've tasted of it, you never want to go back. It, is, it, it really is something. I, I hope I can communicate adequately where, where uh, you will desire to enter into it as well. The final thing I want to challenge you with on loving God with your soul is that if you really want his presence, then you really need to be open to God bringing some sometimes disturbing encounters into your life. God is not tame. You can't be put into a box, okay? You can't be controlled and say, Lord, I want to experience you, but it's got to be within these parameters, you know, that I'm comfortable with. No, God doesn't, he doesn't mind stuff like that. Um, he says in Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And that's really true. If you're asking God, Lord, I want to enter into the soul-to-soul relationship. I want to experience your power in my life. I want to experience the reality of your resurrection in my life. And God says, okay, well, I'm going to do whatever I please then when I'm with you. If you don't want me doing whatever I please. And some people, they, they're just scared of that. They just say, well, maybe God's going to do something weird. You know, <laughs> it'll embarrass me. No, we've got to be open to God, being God, not try to put him into our box and try to frame things theologically so that it excludes anything that we're not comfortable with. And I think many times we do that. We've got to be very careful there. God is bigger than our thoughts. He's bigger than us. And uh, all you have to do is look through the scriptures, and you'll find times when God, yes, he ministers his love, his comfort, and there's other times he knocks us all off his high horse. Okay? So just, just be aware of that. We've got to be committed right off the bat. Lord, I want you no matter what. And uh, he's going to be always consistent with his word. But um, I sort of, I, I put in my notes here that it's like uh, the Narnia tale. Jill, <coughs> first meeting with Aslan, she wanted to drink from the book, brook, but she's uh, afraid to get close to Aslan. And uh, let me read you that section because I think it's a parable of some of the hang-ups that keep us from entering into the joy of God's presence. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, uh, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? asked Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she said. <laughs> I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. Didn't say it as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And that's what I want to say to you. There is no other stream. Christ gives no option for comfortably living within two quadrants, you know, of this love, of this love equation that we have given. No, we must love him with all of our soul. 
As one man said in Lewis's um, book, The Last Battle, it is better to see the lion and die than to be Tisrek of the world and live and not to have seen him. And I think God has placed that yearning for him within every human breast that cannot be satisfied with merely the knowledge about God. The only thing that I think we should be satisfied is with the reality of God's presence uh, with us. And I pray that none of you would settle for anything less. Now, we're not going to spend much time in the last two quadrants, but Jesus says we must love God with our strength. Okay, remember all of the quotes that we gave from the misconceptions of children last week? Well, seven-year-old Glenn said, if falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. And it, it's true in a sense. Love takes too long, right? Love is work. It takes work to work on a marriage, to make a marriage successful. It takes work to work on our love relationship with God. It is just plain old-fashioned work. And so the words diligence, obedience, loyalty, patience, service, those are all love words, okay? They're all a part of loving God with our strength. Now, I think loving God with our strength especially, I mentioned this last week, includes the body. And sometimes our body language does not match up with our verbal language. We will say one thing. You know, I had people in earlier years who said, Phil, are you, are you upset? I said, no. Why do you think that? Well, I don't know. Just, you just looked like you were upset. Or are you uh, discouraged? And I would say no. And so I began looking in the mirror. And sure enough, I did look uh, kind of discouraged or did look odd. And so I just began practicing in a mirror so that my body, I was forcing my body to line up with the way I felt, right? Now, we don't want to be hi hypocrites and, and look the way we don't. And so it's perfectly appropriate to feel sad if you are sad, right? But what we need to make sure is there is a consistency in all four quadrants, and our bodies need to line up with the way we feel, with our, our, our soul and uh, with, with our emotions. And I think a lot of us in the Western world have a difficult time with that. You know, we are so influenced by Greek rationalism, it's very easy for us to say, you know, the Bible talks about kneeling before God. Well, I'm kneeling in my spirit, or I'm dancing in my spirit or I'm raising my hands in my spirit, or whatever the thing might be. God says, wait a shake. Did I just make your spirit, or I'd make it your body as well? I want your body. I want it as a living sacrifice, right? I want your bodies to be lifted up in the service of King Jesus. And so we've got to get over our hang-ups, you know, when it comes to our bodies in worship. We've got to get over our hang-ups when it comes to our bodies serving the Lord. Some people think their bodies are evil you know, in their day-by-day -day relationship. God says, no, I made your body, and yes, it's affected by the fall, but your bodies are important to God. Otherwise, God wouldn't say, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice to him. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. You do your own study. I don't need to do it for you. You do your own study on what the Bible has to say about your bodies, and I think you will be very amazed that the Bible says an enormous amount about what's appropriate for our bodies and what is not. Now, obviously, serving with our strength involves our service, and those of you who, whose uh, language of love is service, man, you love that quadrant. You park on that quadrant, okay? That's very easy for you to do. But uh, if in your outline, uh, on, on the chart there, under the words, all your strength, says there that the activist church tends to see devotion to God in terms of service, action, achievements, energy, and doing. 
that's great that's important each of us needs to have some of that but what i've been trying to get as we've got to have balance in all four all four areas if we claim emotion of love for god but we disobey his commandments and james and john says we're lying it's a hypocritical love on the other hand and this brings us to our last point if we claim to know god with our soul but we hold the theological heresy then the bible says it's a counterfeit experience doesn't matter how great the experience is it's a counterfeit experience i'll just give you one verse second john verse 9 whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of christ does not have god he who abides in the doctrine of christ has both the father and the son you know there's a lot of pastors in omaha says i'm I'm allergic to uh, anything that has ology on the end no theology no doctrine forget it doctrine divides you know love unites and what i would say is that's not love that's a counterfeit love love has the mind and gear right love has good doctrine and so there's a sense in which we can say that the dominant love for every human being ought to be loving with your mind why because the mind takes in the information of the scripture and it judges what's going on in the other three quadrants but you could argue the reverse you could say no they're all equal because if you're not loving in the other three quadrants then your mind is hypocritical because the bible says we ought to be loving in the other three quadrants and you're not loving god with your mind then right so you could argue either direction but for sure make sure that the bible judges everything okay because there are so many errors that we can get into nine-year-old floyd said love is foolish but i still might try it sometime and we would say no 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 it's not foolish and if it is foolish it's not true love the love of the bible is logical in fact logic is part of the image of god in man it is embedded in the scripture every logic uh, 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 every logical principle of aristotelian logic is in the bible and god wants us to conform to that and so um loving with the mind might involve studying mathematics okay and doing it to god's glory it might involve you know planning a vacation you know for our family um it might involve studying doctrine uh you cannot claim to love god if you're not willing to study anything about him and you cannot claim to love the world that he has given to you if you're not willing to study about the world and so it includes science you know here's god's given us this world this is his gift to us what a wonderful gift and we're not willing to study it god says you're not really loving the things that i have given uh to you the mind must be in gear and i would say this is probably the strongest point for our church and that's why i'm not going to spend a lot of time on it unless you guys really object and want a, a separate sermon for it i was going to give a separate sermon capturing minds for king jesus but it's definitely something we should never be ashamed of um some churches want a soft pedal uh, doctrine soft pedal thinking we should say no way sloppy thinking is sloppy love amen okay now i mentioned last week that the tragedy that has happened in modern protestantism is that people go to extremes by fellowshipping only with those who are strong in the quadrant that they are strong in and we mentioned you know that um those with the non-discursive gifts tend to go to the charismatic churches and those who are strong in the relational side of love they tend to go to churches where there is there are you know home groups and there is fellowship and discussion groups and all that kind of stuff and they're not really comfortable with the the emotional side 
And so they tend to go to the broadly evangelicals and the Baptists and Mennonites and other activists. They feel comfortable in churches that are emphasizing the doing. If you keep busy, you're not going to be bothered, you know, with the uncomfortable aspects of the others. Presbyterians feel comfortable where we're only pushed academically. And what I want to say is we're automatically going to get ourselves into trouble if we isolate where we're strong from the other quadrants to balance it out. And everybody's going to be strong in one quadrant or another. I think that's the beauty of the church, you know, is, is we strengthen each other in those, in those points. And the, it's the sad part, I think the church became fragmented because that's almost guaranteed uh, uh, heresies and other problems. So if you want to fill in the chart uh, that we have here, on the top right-hand quadrant, we can, we'll put in maybe two errors uh, that uh, people go to. Heretical pietism could be up in the top rationalism. And you, you can see in church history, churches that have gone in that direction. Okay, bottom right quadrant, you could have unprincipled ecumen ecumenism, ecumenical movement, okay? Like the World Council of Churches or even other, I think the ecumenical movement here in Omaha, it started off with good principles, but because they've totally neglected the doctrine side, it's gotten into unprincipled ecumenism. Or actually, could another thing that you could put in there is irrelevance to society. Man, there's a lot of churches. They're great at, you know, the fellowship, but they're utterly irrelevant to what's going on in this world. They have no solutions, no answers, nor do they care what's going on in the world. Okay, bottom left-hand quadrant, loving with our strength. If that's isolated from the others, you could get into, in evangelical circles, just pragmatism, unprincipled pragmatism. Now, the Bible is pragmatic in the sense that it works, right? But we're talking about unprincipled pragmatism where you don't care about the principle, you just care about whether something makes you feel good. So unprincipled pragmatism, or in liberal churches, it's basically the same thing, liberalism. A liberalism fits down there. Okay, up in the mind quadrant, if it's isolated, you could get sterile orthodoxy. to imitate God by avoiding fragmentism, avoiding reductionism, camping out only on one spot. This commandment of Jesus sums up not only the whole personality, but it sums up the whole of Scripture, everything that the Bible has to say. And so let's love God with our body and soul, mind and heart, with our whole being. Amen. Father, we come before you this morning. It is our desire to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and i pray that you would enable us to do so faithfully and father that as we grow step by step in these areas that uh, uh, we would find great joy in the balance that you have called us to help us to conform our lives more and more to the life of the lord jesus christ in whose name we pray amen